Hello and uh, welcome to episode number 78 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast is being released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, February 8th, 2010. The Agro-Innovations Podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. You can learn more about that at creativecommons.org. Agro-Innovations is also on Twitter, twitter.com slash agro-innovations, and I'm on Facebook. The badge for my Facebook page can be found on the page for the Agro-Innovations Podcast. On this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Jerry, who is the principal blogger on the site blacksoldierflyblog.com. The Black Soldier Fly, whose Latin name is Hermetia elucens, is an insect often found as a grub in compost piles. Jerry has been using the Black Soldier Fly as a tool for rapid composting, and he's been writing about it extensively in his blog. Jerry, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Hi, Frank. Thank you very much. So let's start by talking about the life cycle of this insect, the Black Soldier Fly. Can you tell us about that? Well, sure. Um, the life cycle of the black soldier fly is one of the main reasons that it uh, is not a vector of human diseases, uh, unlike many of the different species of flies. It, um, you know, as opposed to a house fly, which lives 30 days roughly as an adult and you know eats throughout its adult winged lifespan. The black soldier fly only spends maybe five to eight days in the adult stage, and it doesn't actually even have functioning mouth parts, and it lives on stored body fat. So it doesn't travel from waste to your food and then back to waste. And so it basically spends its short lifespan in the adult stage solely for reproduction. So they, uh, they that's the main reason that they... Um, they are separate from disease-carrying flies. So it does not so eat? It doesn't eat? No. I, I believe I've read where they might take some nectar from a flower, and I'm pretty sure one time I saw one of the females lick a little piece of jelly. But, you know, other than just some hydration and maybe a little sugar, you know, I, I believe they can take in a little bit of nutrition. But as far as serious food consumption, they don't do it. And they, uh, um, you know, the, they're roughly 50-50 male and female. And uh, another aspect of that is that you'll, you won't see swarms of the adults. Um, I have probably released a quarter of a million mature larvae on my property. And it's still rare for me to see an adult black soldier fly. And I live in an area that is the is very rich in black soldier flies in the southeast United States, probably the highest density anywhere in the world. Yet my neighbors have never heard of a black soldier fly. Most of them, if I show them one, they, the most I'll get out of them is, oh, yeah, I've seen those before. And, they, and most of the time it mimics a wasp, so they don't even recognize it as a fly. So even with the, the amount that I've worked with them over the past few years and released them on my property, uh, I think the most I've seen 
just uh, naturally occurring other than ones that I uh, protected through pupation. But just to see them uh, accumulating by my black soldier fly unit, I believe, is around 15. So, you know, that's another aspect where they don't, uh, they're just relatively rare. Once they emerge, the males, they typically are in a, a wooded area or around some shrubbery where they mate. They mate in flight, and the males basically just disappear and, and die after that. So half of the population are almost never seen. The females find some waste, which typically would be uh, in some stage of decomposition, so they're not attracted into your home, assuming you don't have decomposing food you know, available. Um, so they find the food, they lay their eggs, and they disappear. So they're really, the adults are, are relatively rare. They don't tip, tend to land on people. They don't bite. They don't sting. They're, they're perfectly harmless. They, they mimic a wasp in appearance. And they're really the only defense. So all that is, is very different from many other species of flies. So, uh, But that's where the, you know, people tend to group flies all into one category when in reality there is over 100,000 species of fly. So it, it's unfortunate for the black soldier fly. Uh, I mean, it's very fortunate. Their lifestyle is what makes them not only the adults, but the lifestyle, of, the life cycle of the larva or grubs. The larva is probably more accurate. Um, that it just works perfectly for processing uh, food waste. But so it's a bit unfortunate, though, that you know most people have a you know are repulsed by flies and don't make that differentiation. Okay, now tell us about the larvae. Um, tell us a little bit about how long they live and what they do while they're in the larval stage and what about them makes them so useful for, for composting. Okay. Well, again, to contrast them to the housefly, which is maybe the most common fly that most people are aware of, um, the housefly egg will hatch in, I think, as short as eight hours, but say between eight hours and one day. And so they typically will deposit their eggs directly on the, the waste, which will feed the larva. The black soldier fly egg takes approximately four days to hatch. So and this, again, goes back to why black soldier flies are not vectors of human diseases, because if they laid their eggs on directly on waste, it would have too much uh, of a chance of being consumed by other animals and, and uh, perishing. So the typical behavior of a black soldier fly female is to deposit her eggs above or beside, just near the waste, and not to land on it. So again, that's less exposure to pathogens by avoiding the waste. So the eggs then hatch in four days. The, the uh, newly hatched larvae are about as thick as a thread and a millimeter long. And this is why sometimes people will find the larva in containers that they thought that you know, no larva could get in, so they, they might open something with a relatively tight lid and find a three-quarter inch long larva and wonder how it got in there. But when they first hatch, they're very tiny and very good at smelling food and finding the food. So the eggs were probably laid on the outside, and when they hatched, the larva were you know, able to access the food. So um, they're just super tiny um, when they first hatch. Then in optimal conditions, somewhere between two and three weeks, they can, they can go through five stages 
where they they are eating and growing rapidly and go from that tiny speck to uh, three-quarter inch or longer larva, um, you know, which, and then the next stage from there, they pupate. Or they have one more larval stage. They, they have five instars or stages where they're light-colored and they eat. The sixth stage or instar is called a, a, the prepupal stage or um, uh, yeah, the prepupa. So what that is a, it still crawls and moves, but in that, and they, the color changes. That's how you know that you're at that stage. They change to a dark brown, almost black color, kind of coffee color. And when they go through that change from the beige-colored uh, juvenile, which eats voraciously and grows rapidly, in that last stage, uh, they don't eat. Their mouth is replaced with a kind of a, a hook so that they can crawl to aid in crawling. They're segmented and they can move their body, but they're, the, uh, they're designed in that stage to migrate away from the waste or the food source and find a dry, safe place to pupate. So what happens is their outer skin, you know, they look the same shape, they're darker, and once they find the place that's protected, they will uh, become, the skin gets harder and straight and they pupate inside and then two to three weeks later, depending on environmental conditions, then the adult fly emerges. So then, of course, the real action happens in the larval, in the juvenile stage of the, of the larva, which is when they, they eat incredible amounts. And um, you know, that's, that's where the real value to us is and their, and their value in nature, is that they are uh, extremely good at processing uh, you know, waste that would otherwise decompose. And a very important scavenger. So I've found uh, grubs in my compost pile that somewhat fit this description, but I'm not quite sure. How can a composter tell if it if they have the black soldier fly in their compost? Mm-hmm. Well, if you really want to be sure, uh, the best thing to do is to uh, keep a larva through pupation and, and look at the adult. That's the best way to, be, to know. But you don't really need to do that to be relatively certain. Uh, if you're in an area that's known to have black soldier flies, although that's kind of sketchy, uh, I, I hear every week or few weeks I hear of someone that has a native black soldier fly population where I didn't expect it. So the last time was Idaho. You know, I didn't expect them to be in that environment. So I'm finding people reporting them farther north all the time, that they're typically semi-tropical or more common, much more common, very um, hardiness zones, you know, up to maybe seven or six. But, you know, they aren't farther north now. But assuming that you're in an area where you, you can expect them, uh, the, the larva itself has distinct ridges, and that's probably the quickest way to know. Well, size is another because you, that will eliminate a lot. If the larva is three-quarters of an inch longer, or approximately that size, you've eliminated many fly species. Uh, a house fly larva would not get that large. It might get as, as big as a long grain of rice. So size is one factor, but then once you get to, the, to that size, there are other flies that have larvae that are that size, but they will appear to be smooth-skinned, and uh, there, I believe there are nine segments on a black soldier fly larva. So that's another, you know, another way. And of course, if you see that they're 
I, I'm not, you know, this is one case where I don't know everything about the other 100,000 plus species of flies, but um, I haven't come across in my, you know, in my time studying black soldier flies other dark fly larvae that look that way. So if you find one that has those segments about that length and it's almost black or very dark brown, then that's, I think, a pretty good indication that it's a black soldier fly larva. Well, let me ask you this. Are there other fly larvae that appear commonly in compost piles? No, uh, I don't believe so. And the reason that uh, black soldier fly larvae are attracted to compost piles is that they're they are not they're not exclusively vegetarian, but they are they are basically designed to consume grain, fruits, and vegetables. That's that's what they're mostly attracted to. They can eat carrion, but it's not the best environment. That's not or not the best environment, but it's not the best material for them to develop on. Um, so, in a, in a compost pile, one important thing to understand about black soldier fly larvae is they they cannot process or very inefficiently, if at all. But the general wisdom is that they can't process high cellulose items like grass, paper, leaves, things like that that are typically the basis of a compost pile, traditional compost pile. But of course, people add other you know fruits and vegetables and yeah, grains to traditional compost piles as well. It's those piles that will attract the uh, the female black soldier flies to lay eggs because that's the material that they really thrive on. So, and I, I, I don't think most of the, I'm just going to, this is a real guess and someone would have to look into this further to, you know, to, before you really go to the bank. But I think of the, the larger fly larvae, I picture up, well, for one, bottle flies, low flies. And those are typically carrion flies, where they prefer carrion, um, you know, any dead uh, animal flesh. And uh, so they wouldn't be likely to show up in a, in a compost pile. So let's talk about how one actually goes about managing this as a resource. How does one get a population of black soldier fly? And once one has a population, how does a person build up a healthy population, and how do they manage that population once it's large and healthy? Okay. Well, to attract them, the best way, of course, is to offer ways. I think the most common way, there's two very common ways that people accidentally attract and discover black soldier fly larvae. Uh, I would say number one is a traditional compost pile, and number two is raising chickens, which is a very, I don't know if you've touched on this before in any of your interviews, but apparently raising chickens on a very small scale backyard, uh, raising chickens in your backyard, uh, just for, primarily for eggs and such, is growing in popularity. So consequently, uh, people are discovering black soldier flies that way because the uh, chicken manure is very nutritious, which it does attract house flies and other species of flies as well. So there's some competition there, but uh, but you know you wouldn't suggest that someone raises chickens so that they can attract black soldier flies. But certainly starting a traditional compost pile, and then making sure that you regularly add fruits, vegetables, and and you know typically people leave high fat things out of a compost pile uh, 
in meat products because it will attract rodents and other pests that aren't desirable. But so I like to start out by suggesting someone start a traditional compost pile. If you want to focus a little bit more or maybe do that and another uh, method of attracting, you can put out bait specifically to try and attract the black soldier flies. Of course, you're going to attract some house flies and some fruit flies in the beginning, and that's just part of it. But once black soldier flies uh, find waste and lay eggs, when, you know, shortly after that, you'll see quite a few. Each female can lay five to 900 eggs. So it doesn't take long for a lot of larvae to show up of the black soldier fly. And as they grow in population in that waste, they, they dominate the waste. And they actually even repel other species of flies once they dominate a particular waste pile. Now, three feet away, if there's waste that's uninhabited by black soldier flies, then that's going to attract other fly species. But it's, it's, um, uh, it's thought now that the black soldier fly larvae give off a pheromone or infochemical of some sort that tells other fly species that this, this waste is dominated by black soldier fly larvae and you know, their chances of survival. I don't believe the black soldier fly larvae would prey on them, but they just dominate the waste so much that the opportunity is not good there. So uh, different reports vary from 94% reduction in house fly reproduction to uh, 100%. So uh, anyway, back to attracting them, though. Uh, just, just quickly in passing, I've been trying to, I've been intending to promote this lately, but a lot of people ask about what type of bait if you want to attract them, and, and I think the very best thing is to take dried corn like cornmeal or even whole dried corn and soak it in water and let it ferment a little bit. And I think that if I had to guess, you know, one um, attractant or bait that would be best for black soldier fly larva, uh, I would, that would be my pick. Um, then so what do you do with it? I, what I, do you do with it once you've, you've made it fermented it a little bit? Well, all you need, you need the scent to be able to go, you know, to, to spread out. Uh, it doesn't need to be really open because as long as the scent's getting out, it could be, for for example, well, let's see, if I was going to do it today, I would probably put it in a bucket with a lid perhaps and to keep raccoons and such out and then make three quarters to one inch holes, perhaps drill them or, or cut some slots in there that would allow a large fly, the adult black soldier fly is probably three quarters of an inch long. Um, but anything above a uh, five-inch or three-quarter-inch hole would allow them access. And, uh, and I would probably just uh, perhaps not leave it in direct sun, but um, just leave it out and um, just have enough water, you know, so that the, uh, um, the corn stays wet but maybe not completely covered with water. And, um, but honestly, any food scraps almost will work. So that's just what I would, you know, what I would say might be uh, a favorite of theirs, you know, cantaloupe, strawberries, you know, any grain. Just mm. just put that stuff in a bucket with some holes in it and put it outside and and just wait. Basically, it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a bit hit and miss. It can it can take you know it can I would say that that can be the most frustrating part. It's it's um, you know, you could attract some and a few days or it could take, you know, several weeks. It's hard to say. Uh, but that's that's an area that needs to be 
I think, developed a little bit. I, I, I intend in the future to do some work to try and come up with a, a simpler uh, method of attracting them and, uh, you know, something that's just a little more, you know, clear-cut steps to a very particular container, and I really haven't worked on that that much. Typically, if you if you have constructed a black soldier fly or purchased, there's, there's one available commercially or made your own unit, you can just put the waste in that unit. Um, and uh, But, you know, you have, um, you know, like I said, you will have to deal with some other species of flies initially, but uh, a little bit of care. You know, we've all had to deal with house flies and fruit flies before, so it's not really a big deal. Well, on the Black Soldier Fly blog, you can see uh, some of these do-it-yourself uh, units that you can make, and there's also some commercial units that you can make. But let's let's keep going with this a little bit. When you get the flies into the bucket and they start uh, eating the, the food waste, uh, what can one expect to see happen, and what should a person do to, to make sure that that's being managed effectively? Well, the main the main consideration in constructing a unit to uh, culture the black soldier fly larva into compost waste is to contain the larva. They're highly mobile, and the goal when you're processing food scraps, for example, is to have a high, a fairly dense population. Well, I refer to them as a colony of of the larva. They're they're I believe their nature is not to want to concentrate that much. So, if they uh, if they have a way to exit the unit, they they will in large numbers, and you won't have the density that gives you the optimum performance. So, the biggest challenge is creating a unit that will be vented because they tend to create a lot of heat as they metabolize food. So, you know, the, the temperature they'll they'll start to perish over I believe 115 degrees. Yeah, they do generate quite a lot of heat. So especially in the summertime, that's an issue. So you have to be able to vent it to prevent rain from coming in uh, and, and flooding the unit, but also contain them. So that's why there's actually only one commercial unit available in the world that I'm aware of, and and that actually does a decent job of doing it. It's a little tricky to duplicate with a do-it-yourself unit um, you, because with a molded plastic unit like the the uh, biopod, they're able to mold a lip into it that you really, uh, it's very challenging to try and replicate that with a do-it-yourself unit. But given the fact that they, you know, once you have attracted them and they're, and you're, you're releasing some on your property so you get a bit more of a concentration on your own property, it really just takes over, the cycle takes over, and if you if you lose 10% or 15 or 20%, uh, you'll still have plenty. So it's, you know, that aspect isn't too bad, but you do need to be able to contain them somewhat. And the reason I mention that is that a lot of people will say, well, you don't need to build a unit. You can just have them in a compost pile. That's true. You can attract them to a compost pile or, you know, a drum or garbage can with big holes drilled in it to, you know, some different variations on composters. But given the easy uh, exits that those holes provide, you'll find that you'll have a decent population and then, one day they're gone. So to, to consistently manage them, you need to devise, devise something that, that will contain them better. Now, the compost, how quickly does the food waste actually get broken down? Well, it's, you know, I would say 
you know, three or four times faster than, than redworms would break it down, is a rough guess, um, many times faster than traditional composting, which is where the bacteria break it down. Um, the, the, uh, well, I refer to the biopod a lot, but it, you know, just to, it's kind of the only standard, but um, with a roughly 20-inch diameter cylinder, um, at the surface area, something like a third of a square meter. But uh, if you just picture a tub that's got at the, at around 18 to 20 inch, it's not a perfect cylinder, but that surface area. And then uh, a dense colony of larvae in that unit can handle probably, I would say, up to five pounds of waste a day. Now there's a has to be an asterisk after that. Uh, I, I'm sure it could be more than that. Uh, I have I have processed probably on average two and a half pounds a day. Uh, last summer I kept pretty good records of what I put in, and it was about two and a half pounds per day. And so that means you know I processed two and a half pounds in 24 hours. So it, you know it might not happen all in 24 hours for some particular waste. Some will happen in a few hours, and some will take a few days if it's hard. You know they they don't really have teeth and a jaw, so they kind of scrape away and, and work at them, so it has to be a bit soft. But on average, you could see somewhere between two and a half or five pounds a day, and, that, and a reduction in, in volume of up to 95% for typical household table scraps, household food waste. So that's really where the, the, the dramatic aspect of it, not only is the speed at which they reduce it, but the volume, and uh, which leads to another issue that if you're designing a a do-it-yourself system, or even with a commercial system, one of the, the biggest considerations is drainage, because if you put 10 pounds of watermelon in the unit, even rind or whatever, you're dealing with you know, maybe, who knows, 95% water, and it's got to go somewhere. So, you know, drainage is key. So, uh, that's so uh, containing the larva, I would put drainage second after that, and then, you know, like I said previously, Keeping, you know, regulating the temperature. So this will the, uh, this will maintain a, a pretty robust population as long as you keep adding food waste to it. Like if you're using a, a biopod. If you don't contain them, the very moment that the uh, the food is less than optimal, or the uh, the concentration of food is less than optimal, or the humidity, or the temperature. There can be a lot of different factors, but as soon as that becomes less than optimal, a large percentage of them will start to leave. Or if it starts to become a bit concentrated in there, basically that relates back to the quantity of food that's available, I guess, uh, they would exit. So by containing them, you have a captive audience, so to speak. And, of course, they can survive for a long time without food. And they, they can survive. They're very hardy uh, in that regard. I mean, they're... They're delicate in one sense, so you could easily squish one. But they're very hardy in terms of chemicals and salts and alcohols and, and acids. They're, they're very hardy in that respect. So they can um, they can survive for many days. You don't have to feed them every day. Um, but it seems like they would be turning into adults. Actually, if you you would probably slow their development down. This is a bit of an educated guess, I would say, but you would slow their development down a bit by, because they're very plastic in their development. So I believe 
slowing the food down a little bit would just extend the time it takes them to develop, as, of course, temperature would affect the lower temperatures, extend it. Um, but, uh, you know, if I'm going to be gone for a week or something and I want to keep my, um, I want to provide some food, I might put something like uh, whole raw potatoes. I typically try and avoid put in, putting in good food that a person could eat. It's a, you know, it goes against the whole point, more or less. But, you know, for some, in some exceptional cases like that, if you put in a hard food like that, or I did pumpkins that were left over from Halloween, that is kind of like a time-release food. It slowly softens, and they can slowly eat it. But um, but I would say I put food in every two or three days on average, and, and they do fine. So the I'm still kind of trying to get my mind wrapped around the the population, the dynamics of the population. Now, how long do they stay in their larval stage? One, and then two, are the females, the the adult females, continually replenishing the population in a biopod or or something, or or even a compost pile? Absolutely. Uh, again, getting back to the 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 adaptability of the larva. Um, under optimum conditions, they'll go through the entire juvenile stage in two or three weeks. Under less than optimal conditions, say, for example, the egg is laid. I had eggs laid, um, not last October, but the October before, in, in mid-October. I live in South Georgia, close to Florida. And those eggs hatched, as, of course, the weather was cooling. And the juvenile larvae that were still in the in my unit as the weather got too cold for pupation, they remained in the they remained in the juvenile stage. I provided some minimal insulation. Uh, of course the winters are mild here, but they can't survive below thirty two degrees. They can pretty much survive down to freezing, but they can't freeze. Uh, but typically if they're in waste, the, the waste itself has some insulation properties. Um, but if you those those larvae that were late in mid-October, were still in the juvenile stage in mid-April of the next year. So it can be anything from two or three weeks to five to six months. So they're, they're in many ways, are very adaptable to, you know, different foods, everything from you know, meat and fruits and grains, pretty much anything that you could eat, anything that doesn't have a super high cellulose content. You know, for example, they, they'll eat an the, a tomato, the entire tomato, but they'll leave the thin skin on the outside and, and completely avoid that or a paper-thin skin of a watermelon because that's the part of the fruit or vegetable that has the high cellulose content. That keeps them from eating that material. You know, they're not pests in the garden because they can't penetrate that thin skin. So um, uh, let's see. So, so when managing a, a biopod, one can expect that the population will continue to maintain itself uh, at a fairly healthy level for for rapid composting. Yes, the it does. It's not a closed system, though. That's one thing that uh, that people get wrong in the beginning. That one of the first things that a person needs to learn is that they mate in the outdoors. You don't have uh, reproduction going on in your unit. They mate in flight, and 
they uh, and then the female returns, you know, not by programming like a salmon returning to where it was where it was uh, born, but they they return to they are um, attracted typically to a, a waste pile that is already inhabited by black soldier fly larvae. So the 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 scent, which we should touch on odor also, but in general the the scent or pheromones that the larvae give off is a very good attractant. So for example, I mean, if it, not to be flipped, but if you want to attract black soldier flies, the best way to do it is to have some black soldier fly larvae already. If you might be putting the cart before the horse, but if you know you could even buy some. You know, which are sold as phoenix worms, or you know, there's some different ways available, or borrow them from someone who has uh, a colony or a compost pile and has them. Those are very powerful attractants. So the cycle throughout the breeding season, the, the warmer weather, is the, the larva mature in a biopod or a well-designed do-it-yourself unit. Once the larva reaches the mature stage. They, they have ramps, typically in a biopod and in a do-it-yourself unit. They don't have to, but as the larvae migrate out of the, um, the unit, they, they're pretty much, you can either contain them and protect them in another bucket, say, with holes to keep them from being preyed upon, because everything in nature that eats insects will eat one. So they have you know, high mortality rates. So I take them when they're mature and put them in a bucket with a few holes, like I described before with a lid on it to keep mammals and lizards and birds from eating them. And then when they emerge, they'll take maybe two or three weeks to pupate. And then once they emerge, they go out and, and mate. And then most of them or many of them will come back and smell the... Again, I want to touch on smell because there's not a bad odor around the unit. But it's a, you know, they can smell the, the subtle scent of the black soldier fly colony. So you do get the cycle, but it's not a closed cycle. But it doesn't need to be in a wooded area. It, it, um, I know a person that lives on the eighth floor in Houston and on the balcony of his apartment. He cultures black soldier flies, and he attracted them there. So, you know, it's, t it's going to be tougher there for sure, but um, but pretty much anyway, they, they, once they're outside and they mate and then, you know, come back to the unit. Once you get, uh, you attract some, um, and you get the larva established, it starts to become much easier. Once you have some larva there, it's much easier to attract more. And once you have more, you know, it's just, it just becomes very easy to keep them. Uh, well, you know, as I said, they're, they're easy to maintain as far as, you know, their, their needs of food and water. That's, that's fairly simple. And once you do have a fairly dense colony, it becomes... That concludes part one of my interview with Jerry from BlackSoldierFlyBlog.com. I will link to that in the show notes for the episode of this podcast. Next week I will be playing the second part of my interview with Jerry. And that interview is a little bit over 20 minutes long, so I'll take the opportunity to read some of your comments and your emails. I get quite a few of them. I read them all. I don't respond to all of them. I try to respond to as many as I can. But I will be reading some of your comments and emails that I have gotten over the course of the last few weeks or months or so. And if you have anything that you really would like to contribute in terms of your comments, ideas, or questions, uh, now's a good time to get those in, and I will be reading those next week. Until then, this is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos. Saludos.